Today our subject really is all about worship, and it's worship that ultimately flows out of living water. Now, when I bring up the subject about worship, what images come to your mind? Probably some of the images that come to your mind are um, people singing songs, or maybe praising with lifted hands, or maybe bowing their heads and bodies low in prayerful obedience, or maybe it's dancing in celebration. Maybe it's uniting together to repeat sayings or prayers, or people sacrificing animals, and in some contexts, even other people, children in particular, to their gods. It could be living for self without regard for others. There's all sorts of different kinds of images that we think of when we think of worship, not necessarily within the church, but just around the world. But when we come to God's Word, where He has revealed His heart and His will to His children, we see a clearer picture of what worship looks like. And I just want to highlight a few encounters that we have in God's Word. Um, When Jesus is born... The shepherds are out in their fields watching their flocks by night, right? And the angel and the angels appear before them, praising God in the highest. There's this wonderful, majestic, angelic worship of the birth of the Son and and the glory of God on display. And then about a year or so later, wise men show up and they worship. They bow down and worship this little child and they bring gifts as an expression of their worship to the king of the Jews. In Isaiah chapter 6, we see seraphim flying around God in heaven calling to one another saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And we also see nations praying, fasting, singing, studying His Word. And we see churches doing the same. I think it's, it's a beautiful picture when you study the Old Testament and you see how, uh, how God brings His people together. When they come together and they have times of great, uh, a great repentance, there is always this celebration that takes place after their sin is confronted, after they have been restored They celebrate and they praise God for who He is and what He has done and what He is doing. Worship is a wonderful reality for God's people. But the reason we see worship in that kind of light is because the object of worship is worthy of praise, celebration, and adoration. God is worthy to be praised. He is worthy to be adored. He is is worthy for us to pause and to stop and to think about who He is and what He has accomplished on our behalf. He didn't have to. He doesn't need to necessarily, but He has chosen to. And He certainly is then worthy of our worship. And this God is the triune God, fully expressed in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who is sovereign, who's supreme, who's majestic, who's holy, who's unchanging, who's all-knowing and all-powerful and compassionate, kind and patient with people, just, fair, and dependable, to mention a few things. And friends, he is looking for people to worship him. He is seeking people to worship him. In chapter 4 and verse 23, the passage we just read, I want you to notice this verse. But the hour is coming and and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. And put a little why in there. Why? For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. This is really the theme of what's going on here in chapter 4. This is the reason why there is living water. Because the end goal, the end accomplishment that God has in His heart is that this woman, this Samaritan woman, would bow down and worship Him. 
And that is the end goal when He calls us to Himself, when He welcomes us into His family. Yes, we are to benefit by, from His love and, and by being a part of the family of God and having all the inheritance of saints. But ultimately, what is He doing? He's seeking people to worship Him. Why? Because He is worthy of it. And you and I could never say, oh, we're worthy of worship. But God, who is holy, just, pure, and without fault, can genuinely say, come and worship me. And I'm seeking people to worship me. And so this passage is telling us that God is seeking worshipers. It's also telling us something about how those worshipers are to worship him. And so friends, this morning, this will be our goal, to understand how God seeks worshipers and to understand what worship looks like. But before we actually jump into the whole subject of worship and we seek to answer those questions, we need to be reminded of the story so far. But let us now just take a, a moment to pray because this subject is so grand and so important that we need his help. We need his wisdom. So Lord, we ask you right now for hearts that are humble, for words that are clear, Lord, for minds that understand your truth and for your Holy Spirit to bring clarity where there is maybe some fog. And Lord, would you strengthen us, would you mold us, and would you shape us to be like your Son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, would we be truly willing to hear the hard things so that we can experience the joy and the blessing of what it means to be your children. We ask this in your precious name. Amen. So, as we come to chapter 4, in this wonderful gospel that John has written, we find Jesus having left the city of Jerusalem. This, this grand, bustling city where the Jews are on display. The Sadducees and the Pharisees, they're all there. They are all um, at work doing their thing, being those religious people. And he moves from Jerusalem, and ultimately we find him on his way out to Galilee, and on his journey, he stops at a little dot, a well that is one mile away from the village of Sychar, or Sychar. And while he's at that well, we find this encounter with this Samaritan woman. And last week we talked about the implications of that encounter, the fact that a Jew is talking to a Samaritan, the fact that it was a woman, and the fact it was the kind of woman that she was. And so there were some things that kind of went counterculture here, but Jesus at that well asks for a drink, and as he asks for that drink, he also says... I am, or basically, I can give you living water. And she says, well, how can you do that? You don't have anything to draw it out. And she's still thinking about, you know, H2O rather than heavenly water and heavenly resources. But he presses on and he, he, he tells her that if you drink this water or anyone who drinks this water will, will never be thirsty again. And it will be like a fountain of water welling up to eternal life inside you, which really is a picture of the activity, the ongoing activity of the Holy Spirit in the life of one who has satisfied their thirst with the living water of the gospel. In verse 15, we find her saying this, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to, dr to draw water. Now, you, you may think of that as being, aha, this is her conversion right here. Or, no, that's not what's going on. She's still recognizing this water as being as being physical H2O. Living water was a word that was described or phrased described flowing water. And if she doesn't have to walk a mile out here to this well every day, which ultimately if you have to walk a mile, how far do you have to walk? Two miles, right? If you don't have to walk that distance and you can find running water somewhere else, tell me where it is. I want to drink it. I want to know it. I'm happy to hear about it. Well, she still doesn't quite get it. She would love that endless supply of water, but Jesus has something much more penetrating in mind. He's seeking a worshiper, and we should pay attention and learn that that is the reality of what he is doing. So when God seeks worshipers, what does he do? 
That is where we are going in this passage. And these three statements that are in your handout now, the three points, are really a response to that question. When God seeks worshipers, he says that's what he's about. He says that's what he's doing. He says, I am about seeking people to worship me. And here's this Samaritan woman. And from this story, we're asking ourselves, if that is true, what does he do? Well, the first thing that he does, friends, is this. He exposes their sin. Um, now, if we look at the whole story, we realize that didn't, Jesus didn't start by just saying, boom, you know, exposing your sin. What is he doing? He's pausing, he's stopping, he's asking a question, he's building a relationship, he's interacting with her. He, br- he brings from a natural thing some spiritual dynamic so that he can communicate to her on a spiritual level. She still doesn't quite get it. And so we find in our text today, um, Jesus saying these words, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. And the woman said to him, sir, I perceive you are a prophet. Now we're somewhat shocked that Jesus would speak so boldly into the life of this woman. Or maybe we're not because we're so familiar with the story. But I think what he's saying here is shocking because he's getting down to the core of her sinful struggle. He has certainly some divine knowledge to be able to see into her life. And it seems bold. But let's get some perspective here. A little perspective um, to help us along the way here. So imagine this story is about you. And you're riding home from working in the city one day, and you're on BART. And a disheveled man comes and sits opposite you, and he just he asks if you have a spare quarter so that when he gets off the train, he can find you know, some machine, and he can get some water, he can get some refreshment. And you know, you're thinking, okay, this guy, look at him. He's just kind of, you know, he's not altogether there, and I'm sure I can spare a quarter, so you're digging around, and you know, you're trying to maybe be a help and just be an encouragement to him. You want to be kind. Then he begins to tell you, as he's looking at you, that you need to be taking your walk with God more seriously. That you have neglected spending time in the Word. That you've neglected spending time in prayer before God and communing with Him. And that you're actually blocking Him out, out of giving Him the the rightful place and giving perspective into your life right now. And you're kind of, as you're looking for that quarter in your pocket or your purse or your wallet, wherever you may have, you're like, what are you talking about? You, You don't even know me. And yet, there's a sense of what he's saying that is actually true. And so you find that quarter and you, you kindly hand it to him and he says, thank you, and he just stares at you. Then he says this, when you begin to take seriously your walk with God, you will find joy and satisfaction in him. And you're looking at this smelly, disheveled man. You're trying to figure out what's going on here. I'm on my way home. I gave you a quarter, enough, right? And yet, some of what he's saying is true. You know he means well. You think he's maybe a little nuts in what he's saying. So you respond by saying, well, yes, prayer and Bible study are important for any Christian. To which he responds, so how is Billy, your coworker today? Now, assuming here that you are a woman in this context, okay? And you're shocked that he even knows Billy, and you respond tensely, he's fine. And he responds to you, yes, Billy is fine. That's why you flirt with him every chance you get and sit at the same table with him at lunch and look forward to quick coffee breaks so you can have that quick flirtatious chat with him. Does your husband know about Billy? And your heart sinks because you know that everything that this smelly, strange man is saying is true. But how does he know? If that man were sitting across from you today at the BART station, 
or on the train right now and he could see into the dark secret of your soul, what would he expose? Would he expose the fact that you have been stealing from your employer but nobody knows about it? Would he expose the fact that you are lusting after another man or another woman but it is a fantasy in your heart so no one is aware? Would he expose the fact that you've been afraid of being found out about some crime that you've committed years ago that if it is found out will destroy your credibility and your reputation, possibly even your marriage? Would he expose the fact that you are secretly in bondage to some addictive drug or that you spend hours at night surfing the web for porn? Or maybe he would see your utter despair of life at your present situation, or your thoughts about suicide, or even your, your revenge that just stews in you because of some wrong that was committed against you years ago, or the panic and anxiety over the overwhelming circumstances that you have to experience that you're living with right now, or the anger at the rebellion of your child, or the, the way in which a, a person that you know treated you, or your bitterness at the loss of a loved one. Fill in the blank with whatever it might be. But this person sitting across from you sees everything. And he's able to point it out. And in pointing it out, shock you into paying attention, into listening to what he has to say. And here's the point. God will often shock us with a healthy dose of sinfulness to draw attention to our need to come and bow down and worship Him. It's called conviction of sin. It's called probing the conscience. It's called looking at ourselves in the mirror of God's Word. God does this, and He does it regularly. The question is, how do we respond? What do we do with that information? What do we do with His loving exposure of what is there in our heart. Our text shows us how Jesus exposes her habitual sin, in particular you might say her sin of finding satisfaction in these relationships and not in God, and then he homes in in particular on her present sin, the fact that she is living in adultery with a boyfriend who is not her husband. Now, that scenario, that reality lays bare who she is, what kind of woman she is, and whether or not she is honoring God with her life. He's exposing the utter despair and the deadness of her present condition. He's laying bare the secrets of her heart. And friends, do not think that you can hide anything from God. Be thankful, if you want to say it positively, that you can't hide anything from God. If you could hide anything from God, what would that say about God? Right? Be thankful that even though what I'm saying sounds harsh and sounds very big brotherish, using an Orwellian analogy there, it is a beautiful thing that God knows everything but we don't often want to believe it, or even if we know it to be true, we reject it. We stiff-arm him. And so, friends, we find our entry into the story in one of two ways. First of all, there is this, uh, there is this um, deadness that separates us from God, which is longing to drink at the well of living water that results in salvation. So in other words, the picture here is of someone who's been walking in darkness and they are thirsty, eternally thirsty, needing satisfaction, and because they're drinking the living water, as they do that, they are radically changed, they're born again, they are saved, they, they are satisfied in their soul. That's the first deadness that, 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 that the, this encounter reveals for us. But there's also a deadness that shrinks back from a healthy relationship with God because you have fallen into sin once again. You've drifted away and you're thinking to yourself, 
I fail God, I keep failing God, he doesn't want really anything to do with me, there's no way that I can really be used in the, the, in the work of God for the things of God, I am, I am just not worthy to be used. And so you shrink back into this deadness and the staleness. And God, God wants to speak into both of those scenarios today, friends. It is at times like this that we need a fresh reminder of the effect of the living water on the soul. First, to drink living water is to embrace fully the gospel. It is to embrace wholeheartedly what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. Get this, Jesus did not come to this earth to feed people who were poor, to heal people of their diseases, to cast out demons. He came to radically change people in the arena of their hearts. Those other things were means by which he was demonstrating who he was so that the message of the gospel would be received by the people that were seeing all these miracles, all these wonders, and would be satisfied with physical sustenance. Those were means to an end. What God is concerned about is satisfying the souls of people with living water. Secondly, to drink Living water is to embrace the gospel and to have within an eternal fountain of that living water welling up inside of us. And that's what I said earlier. It is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Think of it this way. If you are riding that BART train, that person sitting in front of you is not Jesus. He's actually not the one that is penetrating into your heart. When we think about the triune God, it is the Holy Spirit that is sitting across from you that is exposing what is there. He's the one that convicts. He's the one that makes the Word of God come alive. He's the one that through the Word of God is penetrating the joints and marrow and and into that heart and revealing what is there. It is His role. It is His ministry. Why? Because He, along with Christ and the Father, is seeking such people to worship Him. He makes us see the evil in our lives because we cannot make progress in our walk with God, in our understanding of the impact of that living water in our lives unless we see our need, unless we see our sin, unless we see the evil that is present within our hearts. He reveals, you might want to say, the rottenness that is hidden beneath the veneer of what we're trying to present before God. He sees it all. Now, friends, this is not a new message in John. John begins chapter 1 with um, the fact that the light has come into darkness. There's darkness and there's light. The light exposes man's condition. Some people respond by coming to the light. Some people respond by walking away and denying the light. It's not a new theme. It's the same theme repeated over and over and over again so that we will grasp it, so that we will see it, so that we will also come to the light. And when the light reveals our true condition, it is often very embarrassing. It is also very shameful, and we are often feeling feelings of dismay. Left alone to ourselves at that point, without hope, that certainly would be the case. But that's not the end of the story, is it? I want you to think about it. I was contemplating the effect of this, and I was contemplating the effect of maybe someone in our American culture who was kind of held up as kind of like the squeaky clean, good example. Not necessarily a believer, but over time, the person's sin was exposed. And the person that came to mind was Tiger Woods. I mean, he was the poster child, so to speak, of integrity and honesty character and all that kind of stuff and a good golfer until it was found out of his relationships while on the tour and how he had committed adultery with various women and how that ultimately now affected his his family and his wife and how golf clubs can be used for other things than hitting golf balls you know the story ugly horrible Divorce, child, um, you know, torn between parents. I mean, just all this ugliness, but 
There was a squeaky clean picture there. But God can see into all of that. And friends, the result of us simply allowing exposure to take place and just leaving it there is simply that our reputation can be tarnished and what he's called us to can be affected. But nothing will be hidden from God. And that is a good thing because when things are not hidden from God, God brings solutions. He brings things that will help us along the way. Just think with me a little bit through John's gospel so far. Jesus, in chapter 2, went to a wedding. And as a result of his being at the wedding, turned water into wine. And the result of him turning water into wine was that there was great joy among the people. I mean, they, they enjoyed that wine. It was, a, it was a blessing to the wedding, right? The next chapter, or later in that chapter, I should say, we find Jesus going into the temple. And when Jesus goes into the temple, is there great joy? No. He's going in. He's turning over the tables. He's kicking people out. Why? Because he is dealing with the evil that is in the temple. So we have the joy of God and we have the judgment of God. And in the gospel, it's important that we celebrate both the joy and the judgment of the gospel. Let me explain that a little bit. You cannot have the joy of the gospel without the judgment of the gospel. And this is what, this is what happens. We, we, we love to tell people about the love of God, but we're often not willing to tell them about the light of God, and the light of God is what reveals the condition of their hearts. But John's gospel says, He's the light. The light came into the darkness. Okay? It's a whole picture thing. We need the judgment of God to reveal our sinfulness, to reveal our insufficiency, our need of Him. But there is joy in humbling ourselves before a God who knows it all anyway and receiving the blessing of forgiveness and satisfaction that comes from drinking the living water that He provides. Now, let me kind of paint a picture here. Um, a number of years ago, my daughter Vanessa um, was going to have her quinceanera. And so one of the things that we wanted to do is we wanted to um, make sure that our backyard looked nice. And we have this big deck in our backyard. If anyone's been to our house, we have a huge deck. That can be a blessing. It can be a curse. Okay? And one of the things that um, we determined was that we needed to paint that deck and so I went out and looked at the deck and thought okay I, I need to sand this and I'll sand it here and sand it there and I kind of did a spot sanding and the, the paint was chipping and kind of flaking and that kind of stuff and so I, I went there with kind of a belt sander and kind of worked on a few things and did a you know did a kind of a eh, job and then you know thought okay I'll get some good primer and the primer will sink in and and then on top of that I'll paint and you know it took a long time to do all that and, you know, I finished it probably a good two weeks before the quinceanera, and so we brought everything up there on Saturday. It was fine for that particular quinceanera and whatever, but the next year, guess what happened? The paint started to flake, things started to look nasty, and it just wasn't that good. A few years later, my daughter is graduating from school, and we're going to have her graduation party. And I'm looking at the deck saying, it's a mess. Except this time, I had a choice. Either, you know, patch it up like I did before or do the deep cleaning thing, right? Not knowing what I was doing. Totally ignorant. I'm, I am not your handyman kind of a guy, okay? I mean, I have duct tape. I just don't know what to do with it, okay? <laughs> I do know you don't use duct tape for ducks, okay? That's a whole other story, all right? I know that to be true, all right? So I do all this research, and what I find out is that, you know, I, 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 can, I can't just scrape the paint off. What I have to do, literally, is I have to sand that wood down below the paint. Now, the, the boards were actually still healthy. They weren't twisting or anything like that. They weren't rotten. They were actually very healthy. And so I, actually, I had to go, and I had to rent a belt sander, but a walk-behind one. Okay, and I mean, literally for a whole week, I'm just going, and that's just inside the house. That wasn't when I was out there on the deck, you know, this is just everywhere I was going, I'm shaking, you know, and vibrating, right? But I'm going up and down these paths, and sure enough, boy, that sander is just cleaning off that paint, 
cleaning off that paint until the paint was, was virtually gone. And then I had to make sure I wiped it down and got the dust off and got it cleaned and all that kind of stuff. And then, ultimately then, we could put down, after we maybe filled in some holes, we could put down some primer. A couple of layers of primer, a couple of layers of good paint. My friend over here helped me out with it. Sherman Williams, a little plug for him, all right? All right? No, I just, he provided it. And, and then I had family, I had friends, people come over and do all this. And, you know, that was a number of years ago. And I went outside yesterday. And this is where I came up with the, the, this, this whole analogy was I went up yesterday and I was looking at the paint job. And it's dirty. It's filthy out there. So those of you that are coming to my house, you'll see a filthy deck, even though I wash it off. But the dirt is on top. The dirt is not underneath. And the dirt is on top because we have, we've had cats all over the place and make it all dirty. Now, the, the point is this, and get this. So here's what Dick Lucas says, and you may not know who Dick Lucas is, just a great teacher of God's word from England. He says, when we approach people in the wrong way because we avoid the light, oftentimes where there is true conversion, the evil is not exposed and we come out later in, and will come out later in life and then there is much pain. In other words, when we aren't willing to put ourselves under the light. Or when, as we talk with people about the gospel, we're not talking about the light and what it exposes because we're a little fearful of maybe how they'll respond. Eventually, what is there will come out. That dirt will rise up and will cause the paint to flake. And it may be later in life, but it will come out. There's no real satisfaction with the living water unless we are willing to confess what God reveals Therefore, he says, we must probe the conscience with God's truth. Now, how does the Samaritan woman respond to the light of the truth about her life? Verse 19, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Now, this shows that she has at least some understanding that there's something unique, there's something maybe even special about this man, who she really doesn't know yet, who is sitting at the well. And we have to understand that the Samaritans and the Jews, when they thought of a prophet, they, they understood that a prophet, in their thinking, was often given special insight into people's problems to help them with their problems. So for her to say, I perceive that you are a prophet, is not necessarily her saying, I perceive that you are the prophet. We know, because of the book of Hebrews in particular, that Jesus is prophet, priest, and king. He is the ultimate prophet, right? But she's recognizing, she's, she's, she's going through this process of the gospel, beginning to understand, beginning at least to see this, this person who is at this well is not simply a Jew. There's something more to him than simply that. Now, like so many people do when confronted with the truth of their sin, she changes the subject. Look at verse 20. I mean, right away, boom, after he's exposed her sin, and she says, I perceive you're a prophet, what does she do? I mean, it's not like, oh, yeah, okay, you identified me as an adulterer. Now, by the way, um, our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. What? All right, well, again, we're so familiar with this passage and the story that maybe we don't, there's a complete shift in what's going on here. Now, it, the question is, is this a smokescreen or is this, again, the genuine flow of the process of the gospel in her, in her heart? And I, and, I, and I don't know there's enough in this text to give us exactly what's going on there, but it certainly is part of her conversation. And you'll notice that Jesus does not at all bring up her sin again in this conversation. He's identified it, and he's now going to move with where the conversation is going. The question then that she's asking is, who is right, the Samaritans or the Jews? What place is right, Jerusalem or Gerizim? But little does she know that Jesus is seeking people to worship him. That's what he's doing. That's what he's about. That's what he's accomplishing here. So, the second thing we need to see here 
is this, that, that Jesus clarifies the truth. She does ask a question. And again, the question is, our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Now, this conflict between the Jews and the Samaritans goes back centuries. And if you want to turn your Bibles to the book of Deuteronomy, we'll, we'll just kind of cursorily, just in a brief fashion, lay the, the issue out there so that we can understand it. It's actually a, a great story. It's a beautiful ceremony that God had um, Israel um, go through. And what we find there in the book of Deuteronomy, in particular, chapter 28, and, and the surrounding chapters there are all part of it, God told the 12 tribes to be divided into two, two groups and to stand on two separate hills. Six tribes were to go and stand on Mount Gerizim. Six tribes were to go and stand on Mount Ebal. Now, they're like opposite hills and the valley in between. And while they were doing that, while they were separated, they were to read to each other, they were to profess to one another, they were to teach one another what God was saying to each of those groups. Now, the first group then is found on Mount Gerizim. And here they are, they are preaching, teaching, proclaiming, blessing, if you obey the voice of the Lord your God, chapter 28, verses 3 through 6. Let's read that. Blessed shall you be in the city, blessed shall you be in the field, blessed shall, you, shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground and the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your herds and of the young flock. Blessed shall your, your basket and your kneading bowl shall be those things. Blessed shall you be when you come in and blessed shall you be when you go out. If you obey God, if you do what he's asking you to do, blessing, blessing, blessing. That was the voice coming from Mount Gerizim. On the opposite side of the valley, on Mount Ebal, you had another six tribes, and here's what they're saying, and we're going to focus really on verses 16 uh, through 19. Cursed shall you be in the city. So if you do not obey the voice of your, the Lord your God, cursed shall you be in the city, cursed shall you be in the field, cursed shall you uh, shall be your basket and your kneading bowl, cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your your ground, the increase of your herds and the young flock. Cursed shall you be when you come in, and cursed shall you be when you go out. So you have a choice. Be obedient and receive the blessing. Be disobedient, receive the curse. Now, the question here is this. There is going to be an altar established on one of these mountains. Which mountain would it be? Would it be on Mount Gerizim because of the obedience of God's people? Or would it be on Mount Ebal because of their disobedience? And you can go back and you can look at chapter 27. Chapter 27. You will find that the altar was built on Mount Ebal. You say, why would it be built on Mount Ebal? Well, the lesson is very, very significant. And friends, this is, this is a window, this is a picture into the glorious gospel that God has thread throughout his word. There is no way, even though God genuinely, purposefully, and appropriately promised blessing for obedience, there is no way that man could ever be obedient. And if man could be obedient, there would not be any need for an altar to sacrifice on, right? Therefore, there needed to be an altar on Mount Ebal because it's man, God's people, gathered, recognizing their failure, recognizing their sinfulness, and the only place they can go is to God through a sacrifice that would appease God, ultimately that being a picture of the wonderful sacrifice in Jesus Christ that is the sacrifice sufficient once for all. What a, what a fantastic story with a very powerful, impacting message. You say, well, what is the significance of this conflict then? Well, the significance of this conflict 
um, comes by virtue of what the Samaritans then did, because this was all in the arena of Samaria. The Samaritan woman, in talking about this mountain, is referring to Mount Gerizim. The Samaritans scorned worship on any other mountain except for this particular mountain. As I mentioned last week, they only used the first five books of the, of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch. And so they had a, you might want to say, a limited understanding of the, the revelation of God. But even what they did have, they distorted. And here is one of the places that they distorted what was going on. In their account of Deuteronomy 27.4, which said you will build the altar on Mount Ebal, they replaced it with Mount Gerizim. Just think about the implications of that. The implications of that are that the way you get to God is what? Through obedience, through works, through trying to prove yourself. So the Jews despised the distortion of their perverted religion. And a Jew by the name of John Hyrcanus would eventually destroy, I think it's in about 190 um, or so B.C., he destroyed that temple. And there had been bad blood for years. So how is Jesus to respond to this, I want to say deflection, this drawing theological question? If it's a smokescreen, is it a genuine question? Is it the result of the progress of the gospel? Um, those are some questions we still would have to sort through. But notice what Jesus says, verse 21. Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We, talking about the Jews, worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So Jesus' response really comes in three parts. Here is um, the first part. It's not about where, Right? Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. It's not about location, location, location. He diffuses the whole issue with his response here. It doesn't matter whether it's Jerusalem, whether it's Mount Gerizim. That is not the point. True worship is not determined by the location. Now, both of those locations were important. They had some historical value. But listen... Just being there doesn't mean that your worship is somehow going to please God anymore. And I, I hear this. Um, a few years ago, I went with a couple of people that were part of this church. We went to Israel. If you ever have an opportunity to go to Israel just to take in the, the land and, and think about the Word of God and have a, have a guy that can walk you through the places where you are, and it brings technicolor and topography to the Word of God in such a way that just magnifies your understanding. It's really, really wonderful. But... Many people go to Israel as if being in Israel is somehow more spiritual and being at these various locations is somehow a greater vehicle for me to worship God. It's all about the location. I'm saying it's good to go visit for the purpose of growing in your understanding, but simply being in Israel does not make you more spiritual and does not mean that somehow God hears your worship in a greater way because it's not about the location we boil it down, worship is all about the heart. Which is a wonderful reality because that means that we can worship God anywhere. And you can even worship God in a place that is seedy if you are willing to acknowledge the fact that you are wrongfully there and you're sinning before God and even in the moment while you're there, say, God, forgive me of my sin. I confess it to you. You're worshiping him in a place that would be considered awful and yet you're still able to worship him. And the moment we begin to connect location with worship, we are wandering into some kind of more religious orthodoxy that is so very unhealthy 
Now we gather together for worship on a Sunday morning, but understand it's not about the walls or the chairs. And we know that more than anyone else because, you know, we leave and we put them away and this place is not our own. But somehow being, you know, in the building does not make something more worshipful. So it's an issue of the heart. Prayer, songs, raise hands, money in the offering plate. Without the heart, all those things are vain. They're empty and they're insignificant. So the issue is not where, the, the issue is whom. And he identifies here that the Samaritans, the Samaritans are ignorant of whom. You don't know who you worship. Why? Because you've distorted the revelation that you have. The Jews, however, know whom they worship, meaning they have the revelation. They have an understanding that it is the God of Israel that is the object of worship. So it is important to have an understanding of whom. John Piper says this, when all our efforts to be gentle and sensitive and respectful of another person's religion are done, the time eventually comes when you have to say, Biblical worship is true worship, and yours is false. We're speaking the truth. Of course, the response will be, well, you're just arrogant to think. You have the only way. If I had the truth, you'd heard the story. If, if I have the, the solution to cancer within my hand, and you have cancer, for me to say, I have the only solution here is not an arrogant statement. If I'm giving it to you, it is an act of love on my part. But somehow, we just kind of put ourselves in this, this wonderful plethora and smorgasbord of religious persuasion and think that we, you know, we should do battle. No, we have the truth. We have the truth. Now, we want to be careful as we share the truth that we're not just, you know, beating down other religions along the way, that we're working with people on their, their worldview and their comprehension, but there comes a place in time where we expose this is true and this is false. It's not arrogant. It's love. It's compassion. It's caring. Now, the question is, how? It tells us here, the hour is coming and now is here, or is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. So we can, f we can forget about the where, and we should be focusing on the whom and the how, but the key phrase here is in spirit and truth. And the in refers to both spirit and truth. It's important for us to recognize that. And notice the spirit there is a little s, it's not a big s. It's not talking about the Holy Spirit, it's talking about your spirit. Let's just think through what these two words are describing. Worshiping in spirit is the opposite of the cold formalism of external worship. So what he's saying here is speaking right into her world. Is answering her question about what they are practicing as Samaritans. Worshiping in spirit is the opposite of the cold formalism of that external worship. Worshiping in truth is the opposite of the ignorant, man-made kind of worship. A worship that says, I know the Bible says, but my God wouldn't be, and fill in the blank, and that's who I'm going to worship. It has all the, all the frills and, and garments of being biblical Christianity, but is Removed from what God's Word says. God has revealed Himself, and we need to take Him as He is revealed in His Word, not create Him to be a God of our own making. So get this, God is not your co-pilot. He's not. He is the sovereign ruler of the universe. He is the creator. Now we water things down so that people can, can grasp, but listen, he, he's, he's, not, he's not your big buddy. He's not the man upstairs. Okay? And so many times we distort our, the understanding of who God is by these cliche type things. And I would just encourage you, just, just be in awe once again of the magnitude of who God is. When you, 
Well, this is talking about spirit is talking about worshiping God from the heart. Truth is talking about worshiping God based on the view or true views of God that for us are found in his word. Our understanding of who God is is revealed to us by his word. That is the truth then that fuels and, and fashions our, uh, our spirit because now we have our inner man affected by the truth of God. So it's, it's, it's the spirit is talking about worship that comes from the heart. Truth is talking about worship that comes as a result of a true view of the word of God. So worship must have both head and heart. Do you get that? Head, comprehension of God's word. Heart, truly coming from the heart, from the inside out, just like the song we sang earlier. True worship must engage both the emotions and the thought process. Now, here's what happens if we, if we don't have both of these factors. Truth without emotion produces dead orthodoxy. You may have been into a church where you go in and they have, you know, you know, these great songs, and, and, you know, typically it's what's called high church, you know, big organ, you know, you're standing up, you're sitting down, you're standing up, you're sitting down, there's a prayer made, there's this going on, there's that going on, but it's just like it's all formalism, and it's dead, and you're like, where's the life here? It's because it's all truth, you might want to say. You could probably take all the stuff that, that was given there, and it would be orthodox truth. Boom, you could line it, yep, that's true, that's true, that's true, but it's void of any passion. It's one extreme. The other extreme would be emotions without truth produces shallow frenzy and people who reject the discipline and of clear thinking. It's just, woohoo, God is this, oh, your God is that. And it's just, I mean, just, just emotions all over the place and emotions are great. And wasn't it great to be worshiping together because God is so good? And yeah, I know those things are true. But open up the word. Allow it to feed you. And get this, true worshipers are both deeply emotional and love deep and sound doctrine, so John Piper says. I think he's right. God wants us to be passionate worshipers, but he also wants us to be theological worshipers. We're passionate, why? Because God has revealed himself about who he is. That's why I can say, isn't it great that God knows everything that is going on in your life and he can penetrate into that heart? And the answer should be yes, not just because he knows, but I can also trust that the one who knows is also compassion, is also forgiving. So I'm fashioned by his truth and that, that breathes into my heart and my life joy and satisfaction and comfort, and confession. I want to share with you uh, an analogy that John Piper gave um, about the subject of worship. He, I picked this up back in the 80s when he was talking about actually preaching as worship. And um, in that series, here's what he talked about. He talked about the fuel of worship being the truth. So you go, you make your fire or whatever, but you start with the fuel, you pile it up, it's the truth, it's the beginning place, it's, it's, it's the, the part that actually is needed for the fire to be sustained. Then there's the fire of, or the furnace of worship, which is our spirit, that's the arena, that's the place in which this is taking place, it's, the, it's from that place from which worship comes. Then there's the fire of worship, which is the Holy Spirit who's at work. Okay, so... So that this, this, this fuel then is, is kindled, there's this flame, and it's taking place in the arena of your heart. And so this Holy Spirit then, with this fuel, is, is just beginning to, to create this wonderful, wonderful heat. And ultimately, the heat of worship then um, would be our affections, would be our emotions that are fueled by the truth, okay, flamed by the Holy Spirit in the arena of our inner man that is now focusing on God with affections, with adoration, with our emotions. It's really a very, very helpful analogy here just to kind of put all those things together because to worship God in spirit and truth is not just some warm, fuzzy thing. It's rooted in truth and it is also rooted in the reality that worship comes from the heart. It's not some formalism that I go through. Now, he, God, is seeking worshipers to worship him. 
He's seeking the Samaritan woman. He's seeking us. And if we're to worship him, we must worship in spirit and in truth. And so the third thing that he does in this passage, as he is seeking worshipers, is that he reveals the Son. And I'd like just for us just to, to briefly be, or to take note of this. After such a, a stunning answer, you would expect that the Samaritan woman would respond with a glorious testimony of faith. I mean, Jesus is giving her deep, rich responses to her question. I mean, he really he, he dismisses the conflict by saying it's really non-existent, but let me tell you what true worship looks like. And on a practical level, friends, just think about this. If you're talking with someone who who is you know, bound in their, in their religious persuasion and you're sharing the truth of God's word and you are penetrating the heart and when you expose sin, they turn to some kind of a theological question or something that might be a smokescreen. Um, you know what, you, you, can, you can frame an answer there that, that kind of steers away from what they're trying to do and you can actually bring the truth to bear even, even though that, that dismissal statement is there. Jesus here is an example of someone who did that, and you can bring things back to where they need to be. You're clarifying the truth. You're showing that their idea of what God says is false, it's distorted. Let me show you what it really says. And many people think they know what God's word says, but they don't when they're arguing for their particular uh, philosophical or I might want to say religious um, perspective. Notice, notice her response, verse 25. Oh, I already got that there. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ, when he comes, he will tell us all things. And you say, okay, well, wait a second. What is she saying here? In other words, thank you for that answer. What you had to say was revealing. What you had to say was actually pretty powerful, but still kind of a smokescreen, still kind of deferring. You know, I know the Messiah is coming. When he comes, he'll tell us all things. You, you think, is that, is that a smokescreen? The, the answer is, well, maybe, but this actually fits with the, the kind of context of a Samaritan and their religious understanding. And let me explain that. Unlike the Jews who had developed a distorted view of the Messiah, remember when Jesus is coming, what is it that the Jews who are, who are, what is it even the disciples are expecting Jesus to do? They expect him to come and to overthrow Rome, Right? to be this conqueror that comes in. Well, unlike the Jews, the Samaritans had a completely different view of what this Messiah would, would do and what he would look like. They actually had a name for him. It was called the Taheb. And they expected this prophet, much like Moses, to come. And when he would come, he would explain the law. He would be a teacher of the law. So she's referring to the fact that in their system, their understanding of the Messiah was that he was going to come and he would, he would explain everything. Not come to overthrow, but come to reveal and to explain. Which then helps us understand why Jesus' next statement is so powerful. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. I have explained. I have revealed. I am the Taheb, the Messiah. And this woman is so stunned to look at verse 28. Wonderful, wonderful color that John brings into his gospel account here. So the woman left her water jar and went away into town. Wait a second. How far was this away from town? A mile. The very reason for her to come to this well, she leaves that, she goes into town and says, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Now, just let me bring this to a close. The central reality in worship is not that we are seeking God but that he is seeking us. Now, people would like to think that they are seeking God. The scripture is very, very clear. They're blind. They're in darkness. 
They cannot seek God without his help. They need him. Without the help of living water, we will never have our thirst quenched. Without new life of regeneration, we will never be born again. Without totally depending on him, we are without help and we are lost. Now look at the deck, the back deck of your life. What do you see? Flakes? Worn patches? Dirt deep down and seemingly unreachable? Painted but only on the surface with the ugly truth ready to come out at any moment? Three final thoughts. Allow the holy judgment of God to root out your sin deep within and then to produce holy joy. God wants to show you your sinfulness for the purpose of you experiencing the joy of forgiveness. Secondly, allow an altar to be erected on Mount Ebal, so to speak, in your heart and sacrifices to be made on your behalf by Jesus who is your substitute because you are a sinner and you have failed. You haven't achieved, you haven't arrived. It's the whole point of the law. It shows us our utter inability to measure up to God's standards and the fact that we need a sacrifice, we need a substitute, and that substitute is found in Jesus. The third thing is this. Allow the truth or that truth to be fanned into flame by the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit. I think the Holy Spirit is vastly misunderstood. His activity in our life is to fan a flame of worship, which means that we are going to be confronted with our sin. And through that confrontation of sin, we are going to be able to confess that sin or stiff-arm the Holy Spirit and cause a callus to be growing on our hearts, so to speak when he ultimately wants us to come freely and boldly before God with hearts that are clean and open and worship God for his faithfulness, for his love, for his justice, for his mercy, and for the joy that we have in calling him Father. God is in the business of seeking people to worship him. Will you be that worshiper? Lord, help us today contemplate your truth to be worshipers to allow your judgment and your joy to have their rightful place in our hearts we ask in your name amen